Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you so much for coming along on the journey of this podcast that it now is over six years and over 600 episodes. And I am so fortunate. I have interviewed very smart people, very cool people, inspiring people, and people who are making waves in their industry. And today's show is going to be one where all those things happen. Smart, cool, making waves. She's got it all. But before we get started, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Spectrum Reach. At Spectrum Reach, they know three things better than anyone. They know how to harness the power of multi-screen advertising. They know how to offer simplified one-stop shop destination for marketing solutions And they know what makes our cities and towns tick because they are our neighbors. They're the most trusted media partner in America. Check them out at SpectrumReach.com. So today I'm really excited because I have someone who I consider a friend who I just think is really smart. And she puts on really amazing events in her beautiful home. I've been to her house a couple of times. And uh, not only do you go to this beautiful house and there's cool people, but she knows how to put on a great spread of food, too. I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever eaten as well as I've eaten at her house. So her name is Amanda Russell, and she is kind of a, a renaissance woman. She's done a lot of things. She's an entrepreneur who actually sold her digital company and Upon doing that, she realized that there was sort of a gap between academia and corporate and what they were teaching in and around marketing, especially around digital marketing. So she's now a professor at the University of Texas and at Harvard. She's licensing some of her content to other colleges. And at the same time, she's in the middle of launching a book called The Influencer Code, which I am in the process of reading. And I got to tell you. It's really good. So make sure as soon as you finish listening to this podcast, you jump over to Amazon and buy the influencer code. So Amanda Russell, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you, Tom. And I have to say of that whole introduction, this might be the one podcast that I have to send my mom to learn how to listen to podcasts. My mother's Italian and she's going to be so proud (laughs) of all of the things. It's about the food. Manja. (laughs) So thank you. Yeah, no, your mom will be thrilled that you, she probably didn't think you were paying attention, but you know how to put out the, the, the spread for everybody. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. So your background is fascinating to me because, you know, you really sort of did become sort of an early, I, I know the term influencer is tossed around and means a lot of different things, but you had sort of a, a fitness brand. Can you tell us about your early days? Yeah, so I, most people when they, you know, when you Google somebody, which is what you do before you meet them usually now, uh, they find that I did YouTube videos, uh, fitness YouTube videos, and that's sort of how I was stereotyped. And it became kind of like this um, almost insecurity of mine because when I I started, um, I actually started in New York doing corporate consulting for one of the big firms. And I went back to business school. And at that time, YouTube was actually very, very new. And it was not, it was, there, there wasn't a lot of curated content. It was mostly like entertainment, like Dumb and Dumber style entertainment, a little bit of music, 
Um, yeah, there was early on, especially there was a lot of people like riding bicycles into walls. Yes. Like there was no, exactly. There was, and I actually had, so I remember this very, very well because I had actually never seen YouTube ever. Uh, and I was at a coffee shop in the West village and I met this man and he owned an advertising agency and he was telling me all about YouTube, this thing, YouTube. And I'm like, what really, This what are they doing? And I ended up looking at it and I was just completely blown away by how these people who really, when they talk about quality of content, there was no quality of content. It was just like random stuff. And the fact that the matter of that fact was so incredibly fascinating because they weren't even delivering value, quote unquote, but they were, (laughs) what they were doing was amassing these followings. And so I started like reading through the comments and stuff and being like, Oh my God, they have like a tribal like following, like these people are celebrities to these, these communities. And it was like a, it was like a light bulb kind of went off. I was doing a marketing MBA at the time. And I thought this could be my project. Like, can you imagine if you actually had like substance on here? If I, you know, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll start a channel. Are we all putting the cart before the horse and trying to develop like, products or services or ideas and then trying to sell them. But looking at these people, like they could, they could pick up like glue and try to sell it. And they would, because their audience just wants stuff from them. And this was before the time when like cell phones had um, cameras or, or videos. And, uh, but the, so the only really capital that it required was um, at the time a flip cam. So I bought, I, I bought a flip cam and I, decided to start my YouTube channel and I didn't for, for content. I remember thinking, well, uh, I don't know what I could do because I'm not really funny or clever and I you don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> and you weren't going to ride a bicycle into a wall. It was, yeah, I didn't even, I don't even, yes, exactly. Uh, but I, at, at that time, I think anytime you're, you're, you do a lot of something or it, it's you're passionate about something there, that's that, that creates that weird word of authenticity. And for me, that was fitness. I had been a competitive athlete my whole life. Uh, the whole reason that I ended up in New York was because my career ended with a, a pretty tragic uh, uh, immediate injury in which I had to learn to walk again and I had to rehab myself. And because of that, I went through two years of like extreme, extreme rehabilitation in which I actually was like, stopped going to physical therapy because I felt like I knew my body better and it was too slow and I would never walk properly again. And I tried to, so I created my entire own program because of that. I then people started asking me about my fitness regimen, all this stuff. So that's what I did was I basically started a fitness channel on YouTube. That was all about how to get in shape like an elite runner without being able to have any impact on your body. Hmm. And that. Um, that became the it, but it doesn't matter what the it was for me. It happened to be fitness and I started and I wanted to produce it. Like I thought, gosh, if I could produce it like a television show by saying, okay, every Wednesday at this o'clock, a new show comes out, even though with YouTube, we all know that it's not like you have to tune in at that time. But I thought there was something about consistency and being able to expect um, something. And so I did. And that, um, that channel became one of the fastest growing fitness channels on YouTube at the time. And uh, got me into um, uh, a sponsorship with Google YouTube. And that's when I knew that I had something that was enabling me to not have to go back to my corporate job. 
which was my end game. I, um, and, you know, people say they don't know what they want to do. I didn't know what I want to do. I knew that I wanted to do something that I owned. I just didn't know exactly what that was. And I knew that I had to go through the process of working, you know, working for big companies and working in different fields to sort of be able to figure it out. Um, and then when this happened, I remember <clears throat> thinking this is great, but YouTube is not, I don't own YouTube. I don't own the platform. So if YouTube shuts down tomorrow, I'm in trouble. So that's when the real business model part of it really came in. And uh, when I decided that I needed something that I owned, I had this community. Now, how do I drive to something that's a business, a long-term business model? And that's where I decided a subscription model was what I wanted to do. Well, a subscription model, Tom, in that time, this is people weren't shopping on Amazon. They were barely even, I mean, at the time I did not shop online at all. Yeah, this was definitely a little bit ahead of the curve for sure. It was very risky. Yes, because I do. I remember that I did not even buy anything online because I did not trust putting my credit card into the internet, (laughs) let alone, let alone, let's develop a model where we're going to put your credit card in on a monthly a monthly basis and you're not going to get anything tangible in return. There's going to be nothing sent to you. It's going to be video online video, but my community was strong enough. Uh, and so I pitched it to uh tree entertainment in Los Angeles who are old school television producers, um, mainly in the fitness meets entertainment space. So they were behind biggest loser and amazing race. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these kind of shows, they've been doing television for so long. A little sideline. My, my secret dream would be to be on the amazing race, but go on. Really? Uh, uh, oh yeah. Dreams can happen, Tom. Now <laughs> who knows who's listening. So, uh, the long story short is that I, I, you know, I pitched them to be my business partners to produce it like a television show and that we, I would need, you know, the capital and the backing to, and the infrastructure to be able to build out this full on subscription model uh, we did, we partnered and this was before it was very easy to build a website. Um, so we built the subscription model out from scratch and I have to say, and I think that they would agree with me that this was probably one of the most stressful ventures that either party had ever gone through. Never. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it was extremely, extremely high stress. Uh, there were so many problems. You had to have 24 hour customer service. You're dealing with liabilities of women on diets and losing weight all over the world. And, um, and, and the idea that we're doing something that wasn't really quite acceptable, accepted by mainstream yet. Um, and things were always breaking down. And, uh, so by doing that, it was, that was probably a huge education in itself. And I realized that there was actually no one we could hire because, even though we had a lot of resources, there was no one that really had done it either. So we kind of were pioneers. And that's when I decided that I wanted to, I didn't want to continue to be talent. I I was talent because I, that was all I had in business school. I had to start a channel. I didn't have like the ability to hire somebody. I really was fascinated with the business side of it and the marketing and the community driving. And so I spun off and started an agency that specialized in creating digital production and programming, um, specifically, mostly in the fitness. We were niche in the fitness wellness space. And it was right around the time when all of the publications, such as like, you know, women's health, men's health, Livestrong, they all started creating programming online. So we were really in that space and having, um, and that's when I decided, you know, I was in New York. I decided to really to, to start spending a lot more time in Los Angeles, which is really the epicenter of fitness content and production. 
Um, and so that was kind of the evolution. In doing so, how do you build these communities? How do you how do you leverage? And it's about so much more than finding someone with a following. And I remember thinking like, this is the key to growth. And in the very beginning, what stuck out to me was the not so much the people that would collaborate. I called it collaboration at the time. But the ones who could have and didn't because they either saw it as competition or they saw it that they were too big for me. I was mm-hmm. just too, I was just starting out. I was nobody. And I, that I, I see that is still a real common problem is people are judgy. Is. I, I asked someone to be on my podcast the other day and they said, well, how many downloads do you get per episode? And I said, you know, one to two thousand, which in the podcast world is actually high, but it's not ridiculously high. And they were like, oh, I don't do anything with less than 10,000 downloads. And I was like, OK, you know, whatever. You told them that in, amongst your audience was Oprah and the president. Yeah, that's right. You don't know who those thousand are. Right. Yeah, exactly. So and th- and that that was kind of my and I, it, it almost became like a driving factor, like not e- there was the ones that did. And yes, they were aw- awesome. But it was the ones that could have been didn't that I was like so driven to want to like go beyond and go further to prove that you should have at you know at that time um and i don't think there's such thing as competition we you know it if and by believing in that you're so self-limiting um we're exponentially so much more powerful and we can scale so much faster if we collaborate well in my world as a, as a professional speaker and master of ceremonies at events i get about 20 percent of all of my business as recommendations from other speakers who you know, well, you would say, well, they're your competition. Well, I mean, but after they've spoken at a conference, that conference doesn't want them next year. So they're like, hey, I know someone who'd be great. I get about 20% of my business directly from speakers who tell other, who tell meeting planners, oh, you should have this guy. So competition is silly because as you're saying, you know, in the world we live in, you know, one plus one can be 17. Exactly. And it's funny because I'm so hypercognizant of that, that they're, I, that's one of the the guiding traits that I that always factors into my mind when I meet people is like they're you know I always remember when somebody makes an introduction or like follows through on something or says something like it's just it's I think having having you know had such a network as an athlete and then having it all gone in a flash and moving to New York with nobody and no not even family in the country and having to really build it to see who helps you who supports and who doesn't it became like this, almost this like, um, not even, I don't want to say chip on. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you so much for coming along on the journey of this podcast that it now is over six years and over 600 episodes. And I am so fortunate. I have interviewed very smart people, very cool people, inspiring people, and people who are making waves in their industry. And today's show is going to be one where all those things happen. Smart, cool, making waves. She's got it all. But before we get started, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Spectrum Reach. At Spectrum Reach, they know three things better than anyone. They know how to harness the power of multi-screen advertising. 
They know how to offer simplified one-stop shop destination for marketing solutions. And they know what makes our cities and towns tick because they are our neighbors. They're the most trusted media partner in America. Check them out at SpectrumReach.com. So today I'm really excited because I have someone who I consider a friend who I just think is really smart and she puts on really amazing events in her beautiful home. I've been to her house a couple of times and uh, not only do you go to this beautiful house and there's cool people, but she knows how to put on a great spread of food too. I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever eaten as well as I've eaten at her house. So her name is Amanda Russell and she is kind of a, a renaissance woman. She's done a lot of things. She's an entrepreneur who actually sold her digital company and upon doing that, she realized that there was sort of a gap between academia and corporate and what they were teaching in and around marketing, especially around digital marketing. So she's now a professor at the University of Texas and at Harvard. She's licensing some of her content to other colleges. And at the same time, she's in the middle of launching a book called The Influencer Code, which I am in the process of reading. And I got to tell you, it's really good. So make sure as soon as you finish listening to this podcast, you jump over to Amazon and buy The Influencer Code. So Amanda Russell, Welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you, Tom. And I have to say of that whole introduction, this might be the one podcast that I have to send my mom to learn how to listen to podcasts. My mother's Italian and she's going to be so proud <laughs> of all of the things. It's about the food. Manja. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Yeah, no, your mom will be thrilled that you, she probably didn't think you were paying attention, but you know how to put out the, the, the spread for everybody. That's awesome. <laughs> Exactly. So your background is fascinating to me because, you know, you really sort of did become sort of an early, I, I know the term influencer is tossed around and means a lot of different things, but you had sort of a, a fitness brand. Can you tell us about your early days? Yeah. So I, mo most people when they, you know, when you Google somebody, which is what you do before you meet them usually now, uh, they find that I did YouTube videos, uh, fitness YouTube videos, and that's sort of how I was stereotyped. And it became kind of like this um, almost insecurity of mine because when I, I started, um, I actually started in New York doing corporate consulting for one of the big firms. And I went back to business school. And at that time, YouTube was actually very, very new. And it was not, it was, there, there wasn't a lot of curated content. It was mostly like entertainment, like Dumb and Dumber style entertainment, a little bit of music. Um, yeah, there was, a, early on especially, there was a lot of people like riding bicycles into walls. Yes, like there was no, there, exactly. There was, and I actually had, so I remember this very, very well because I had actually never seen YouTube ever. Uh, and I was at a coffee shop in the West Village and I met this man and he owned an advertising agency and he was telling me all about YouTube, this thing, YouTube. And I'm like, what, really? This, what are they doing? And I ended up looking at it and I was just completely blown away by how these people who really, when they you talk about quality of content, there was no quality of content. It was just like random stuff. And the fact that the matter of that fact was so incredibly fascinating because they weren't even delivering value, quote unquote, but they were <laughs> what they were doing was ma amassing these followings. And so I started like reading through the comments and stuff and being like, oh, my God, they have like a tribal like following like these people are celebrities to these this, these communities. And it was like a it was like a light bulb kind of went off. 
I was doing a marketing MBA at the time. And I thought this could be my project. Like, can you imagine if you actually had like substance on here? If I, you know, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll start a channel. Are we all putting the cart before the horse and trying to develop like products or services or ideas and then trying to sell them? But looking at these people, like they could they could pick up like glue and try to sell it. And they would because their audience just wants stuff from them. And this was before the time when like cell phones had um, cameras or, or videos. And uh, but the so the only really capital that it required was um, at the time a flip cam. So I bought I, I bought a flip cam and I decided to start my YouTube channel. And I didn't for for content. I remember thinking, well, uh, I don't know what I could do because I'm not really funny or clever. And I you don't want to hear me sing. And you weren't going to ride a bicycle into a wall. It was, yeah, I didn't even, I don't even, yes, exactly. Uh, but I, at, at that time, I think anytime you're, you're, you do a lot of something or it, it's, you're passionate about something there, that's, that, that creates that weird word of authenticity. And for me, that was fitness. I had been a competitive athlete my whole life. Uh, the whole reason that I ended up in New York was because my career ended with a, a pretty tragic uh, uh, immediate injury in which I had to learn to walk again and I had to rehab myself. And because of that, I went through two years of like extreme, extreme rehabilitation in which I actually like stopped going to physical therapy because I felt like I knew my body better and it was too slow and I would never walk properly again. And I tried to, so I created my entire own program because of that. I then people started asking me about my fitness regimen, all this stuff. So that's what I did was I basically started a fitness channel on YouTube that was all about how to get in shape like an elite runner without being able to have any impact on your body. Hmm. And that, um, that became the it, but it doesn't matter what the it was for me. It happened to be fitness. And I started and I wanted to produce it. Like I thought, gosh, if I could produce it like a television show by saying, okay, every Wednesday at this o'clock, a new show comes out, even though with YouTube, we all know that it's not like you have to tune in at that time. But I thought there was something about consistency and being able to expect um, something. And so I did. And that um, that channel became one of the fastest growing fitness channels on YouTube at the time and uh, got me into um, uh, a sponsorship with Google YouTube. And that's when I knew that I had something that was enabling me to not have to go back to my corporate job, which was my end game. I, um, and you know, people say they don't know what they want to do. I didn't know what I want to do. I knew that I wanted to do something that I owned. I just didn't know exactly what that was. And I knew that I had to go through the process of working, you know, working for big companies and working in different fields to sort of be able to figure it out. Um, and then when this happened, I remember, <clears throat> thinking this is great, but YouTube is not, I don't own YouTube. I don't own the platform. So if YouTube shuts down tomorrow, I'm in trouble. So that's when the real business model part of it really came in. And uh, when I decided that I needed something that I owned, I had this community. Now, how do I drive to something that's a business, a long-term business model? And that's where I decided a subscription model was what I wanted to do. Well, a subscription model, Tom, in that time, this is people weren't shopping on Amazon. They were very, barely even. I mean, at the time, I did not shop online at all. Yeah, this was definitely a little bit ahead of the curve for sure. Very, it was very risky. Yes, because I do. I remember that I did not even buy anything online because I did not trust putting my credit card into the Internet, <laughs> let alone let alone 
let's develop a model where we're going to put your credit card in on a monthly a monthly basis and you're not going to get anything tangible in return. There's going to be nothing sent to you. It's going to be video, online video. But my community was strong enough. Uh, and so I pitched it to uh, Trium Entertainment in Los Angeles, who are old school television producers, um, mainly in the fitness meets entertainment space. So they were behind Biggest Loser and Amazing Race and a lot of these um, a lot of these kind of shows. They've been doing television for so long. A little sideline. My, my secret dream would be to be on The Amazing Race. But go on. Really? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Dreams can happen, Tom. Now, <laughs> who knows who's listening? So uh, the long story short is that I, I, you know, I pitched them to be my business partners to produce it like a television show and that we, I would need, you know, the capital and the backing to, and the infrastructure to be able to build out this full on subscription model. Uh, we did, we partnered and this was before it was very easy to build a website. Um, so we built the subscription model out from scratch and I have to say, and I think that they would agree with me that this was probably one of the most stressful ventures that either party had ever gone through never i know it sounds ridiculous but it was extremely extremely high stress uh there were so many problems you had to have 24-hour customer service you're dealing with liabilities of women on diets and losing weight all over the world and um and, and the idea that we're doing something that wasn't really quite acceptable accepted by mainstream yet um and things were always breaking down and uh so by doing that it was that was probably a huge education in itself. And I realized that there was actually no one we could hire because even though we had a lot of resources, there was no one that really had done it either. So we kind of were pioneers. And that's when I decided that I wanted to, I didn't want to continue to be talent. I, I was talent because I, that was all I had in business school. I had to start a channel. I didn't have like the ability to hire somebody. I really was fascinated with the business side of it and the marketing and the community driving. And so I spun off and started an agency that specialized in creating digital production and programming, um, specifically mostly in the fitness. We were niche in the fitness wellness space. And it was right around the time when all of the publications, such as like, you know, women's health, men's health, Livestrong, they all started creating programming online. So we were really in that space and having, um, and that's when I decided, you know, I was in New York. I decided to really to, to start spending a lot more time in Los Angeles, which is really the epicenter of fitness content and production. Um, and so that was kind of the evolution in doing so. How do you build these communities? How do you, how do you leverage and devote so much more than finding someone with a following? And I remember thinking like this is the key to growth. And in the very beginning, what stuck out to me was the not so much the people that would collaborate, I called it collaboration at the time, but the ones who could have and didn't because they either saw it as competition or they saw it that they were too big for me. I was mm -hmm. just too, I was just starting out. I was nobody. And I, that I, I see that is still a real common problem is people are judgy. Is. I, I asked someone to be on my podcast the other day and they said, well, how many downloads do you get per episode? And I said, you know, one to 2000, which in the podcast world is actually high, but it's not ridiculously high. And they were like, oh, I don't do anything with less than 10,000 downloads. And I was like, OK, you know, whatever. You told them that amongst your audience was Oprah and the president. Yeah, that's right. You don't know who those thousand are, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and th and that that was kind of my and I, it it almost became like a driving factor. Like 
not there was the ones that did and yes they were awesome but it was the ones that could have been didn't that i was like so driven to want to like go beyond and go further to prove that you should have at you know at that time um and i don't think there's such thing as competition we you know if and by believing in that you're so self-limiting um, we're exponentially so much more powerful and we can scale so much faster if we collaborate. Well, in my world as a, as a professional speaker and master of ceremonies at events, I get about 20% of all of my business as recommendations from other speakers who, you know, well, you would say, well, they're your competition. Well, I mean, but after they've spoken at a conference, that conference doesn't want them next year. So they're like, hey, I know someone who'd be great. I get about 20% of my business directly from speakers who tell other, who tell meeting planners, oh, you should have this guy. So competition is silly because as you're saying, you know, in the world we live in, you know, one plus one can be 17. Exactly. And it's funny because I'm so hypercognizant of that, that there, I, that's one of the, the guiding traits that I, that always factors into my mind when I meet people is like they're you know i always remember when somebody makes an introduction or like follows through on something or says something like it's just it's i think having having you know had such a network as an athlete and then having it all gone in a flash and moving to new york with nobody and no not even family in the country and having to really build it to see who helps you who supports and who doesn't it became like this almost this like um not even, I don't want to say chip on your shoulder, but like I'm hyper, hyper, hyper sensitive to it. So let's, let's fast forward. So you built, you built this digital agency, you, you, you did all this stuff and then you sold it. I did. Um, I sold it in 2018 and it was a two, two year exit. So I'm only really just free a few months now, uh, free. I won't say that. Um, it was, I didn't intend to sell. Uh, it was, um, uh, a client slash um, mentor of mine in a completely different field, um, hardcore Wall Street, um, much, much older, non into the digital space, not into social media, not into marketing, had a, a, a big, big firm, a private equity firm, and they, they bought a brand and then uncovering the IP of, of, of one of the companies they had bought, they realized that they had, um, they had unearthed uh, one of the biggest fitness brands in the world that was always no, never in name. It white labeled all equipment for everything you've probably ever seen for every team, every sporting goods store. Um, and they were like, oh, my God. And the company was actually in the red. Oh, my God, this company is too big to kill. What should we do? Can we build? Can we make it a brand? Can we can we can we re, can we re, revive it? Uh, and they asked me what they what it would do to get to take to get me in house. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to go in house ever again after this. And uh, but I really, really respected the CEO um, and, and their board. And they, I said, he said, well, why don't you put together a, um, a pitch that is if you could have it your way, what would that look like? And so I did. I, I it was quite a pitch. And uh, it, he, they passed it through the board and ended up selling it that way. And it was very interesting because there was a lot of um, it was like selling two companies in that a lot of the uh, database that we had was I had over 500 workout videos myself. So a lot of it was my name and personality. So you're selling the person like so you're coming from this <laughs> arena of like, you know, old school, like personality branding, celebrity, whatever. Um, and a company and 
assets and IP, it was very interesting. Um, my lawyer became, uh, I think he had an education as well. <laughs> we went through together. He, he guest lectures in some of my classes on it because he's, he's so well-versed now. So Amanda, um, it, it's, it's fascinating to me because the stuff you were doing is what everybody's trying to do now. I mean, realistically, what you were doing 10 and 15 years ago was what the sort of digital world became. And the tools came along so that you didn't have to build it out from scratch and and, mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. But, you know, and, and you have a video, high-end video HD camera on your phone. Uh, you did it the hard way because there was nobody. You were the pioneer who went through this. So I call the show Making Waves at Sea Level. Everything you've done in business has been making waves because you were two steps in front of what has become sort of the norm, I would say. Uh, what did you learn by having to be this trailblazer in this world of digital? That's a that's a great question. Uh, I think that one of the things that I learned is going to sound very unexpected to you. And that was this idea that you have, if, if you want to achieve something, uh, you have a, you, you, even if you don't know, and I don't think very few people know exactly what it's going to look like, but as long as you have a plan, what you have to do, especially in, in, when you're, you're a first mover, is you have to kind of put blinders on to what other people around you think. And you have to strip yourself of any ego because I can tell you for certain that when I was doing, when I had graduated from my MBA program and I was not going back to this white collar consulting firm and I was going to be doing YouTube videos, I lost complete respect from my parents. Uh, I think I lost complete <laughs> respect from almost everyone around me, including the people that I had worked with. They were like, so what? So, so almost kind of, you know, the, the kind of jokey, like, so um, you're doing you're doing YouTube now. I hear I I, I hear you've got some great leg warmers uh, and just I mean comment you know. And so if I had believed that and kind of stayed on the pedigree route of like how paper is supposed to look, it looked like I took a ten steps backwards, sure. right? Like it looked like I and I believe that that if you are confident in what you're doing, that you have to sometimes. On paper, it's going to look like you're taking steps backwards or taking steps to the left and right. And in business school or in your or traditionally, they teach you not to do that. And I don't agree with that. I think that you have to, especially if you don't have a safety net, you have to build a plan with an infrastructure so that you see that 10 year goal. You see that 10 that goal down the line and that as long as you know that you're working backwards from that goal, that you're building the infrastructure. So I needed to build a certain infrastructure that I didn't have yet. I couldn't just jump that way. And so for me, it was like building the infrastructure of the house, knowing that I remember thinking in my head every time I would get um, a comment or like a snicker or like the, the elephant in the room conversation that I would just in my head be like, just wait, just wait. I can't wait. So do you think being a pioneer in business and now teaching at business at respected top tier business schools and having created this digital and thing that you sold, do you think because you're an attractive woman who did fitness workout videos, 
do you think that people stereotyped you? Do you think people just sort of rolled their eyes? I mean, you, you were kind of saying that without saying it. So I want to just yeah, put no, the question right out there. That's I'm so you're the first person that's ever asked that. And it's like, I, it's almost like I want to be asked that because <laughs> that has been, it's always the elephant in the room. And um, one of the things that it came up when I started teaching at UCLA and it came up there and it really, really came up at University of Texas. Um, maybe it's a cultural difference. I'm not sure. But I remember um, when they were, because they go through, I mean, the process of getting hired at a university is like harder than I, like, you'd think they're going through your friend, like criminal investigation or something. Um, and so, you know, they go through all of your work and every little thing you ever, and they verify everything. And one of the, the, the things that kept coming up that I had to, you know, defend was the fact that, and I should send it to you, I should send my argument, um, <laughs> was, was the fact that it had come up that I had a brand that was called Fit, Strong and Sexy. And was that really the image that, you know, a, a professor should portray? And that I was seen around the internet in a bodysuit and, um, and, and, you know, leg warmers. <laughs> and I, I get it. I do. Uh, my argument to that was the name of that brand was created by the audience. I didn't want it to be my name. We did an audience poll to see what would sell. If you are in advertising or marketing, sex sells. Mm -hmm. uh, my audience sold. And by the way, if I'm teaching, if, I, if there's nobody teaching, you can't, can you teach academic theory on how to build a digital brand? Not having done it. Uh, and, although although uh, I'm sure there are some people who do. Well, that's to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had not just done it. I had done it myself, but then I it made the ability to transition to behind the scenes. And then I, and the reason I wanted to get into teaching was because I saw the critical gap between academia and um and corporate and real world and thinking like having and i'm one that i have gone to business school and i what i teach is what i wish that i would have learned uh and i think that there has to be this this somebody there's got to be a change there's got to be a change that bridges that gap and to me that was i believe that that was my bigger purpose and it's it's funny because i um I'm working on a documentary right now. It's, just, it's, it's from my former life as an athlete and um, working with one of the greatest sports documentary producers of all time. And he was, you know, he was in Austin yesterday to, to meet, to talk about this. And we talked a little bit about like my, my the devastation and all of this stuff of, of the, the career ending. And I said, you know, at the time it was like a death. And now as I'm further and further from it, then the, what I, what I realized was that I was so intense in that arena, but because it ended, that only, as an athlete, it, it only affects you. You only help yourself. Nobody cares after that you've broken a record, you've won a game, who cares? But I was given this gift to end it early because all of this intensity and energy was supposed to be put for a bigger purpose. And I didn't know what that purpose was. And now that I'm teaching, I feel like that that was my 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 bigger purpose. Mm -hmm. So I've got a couple more questions for you, and I want to talk about this book. But first, I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode, like all of them, is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing 
Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing people who are making waves like Amanda Russell. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know, I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. And yes, I say it every now and then, I realize it should be changed to podfly.net slash making waves since we changed the name of the podcast from cool things entrepreneurs do, but I'm lazy and I haven't called them and said we need to create a new landing page. So uh, podfly.net slash cool things. So Amanda, this book, The Influencer Code. So when I hear the word influencer, I'm going to be really honest. I cringe. I was at a networking event back when those existed. Remember, we used to go to live events and uh, this woman came up to me and she wanted to meet me because she had heard I was the speaker. And I said, oh, what do you do? And she goes, well, I'm an influencer. And I almost threw up in my mouth a little bit when she said that. And then she proceeded to tell me how people fly her around the world and she does all this stuff. And then I started stalking her online and yeah, they did. People paid for it, but it's not like she had millions of followers and it's not like I, I just found her presentation to gross me out. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure she did great work, but it was like, I'm an influencer. I was like, eh. so I cringe when I hear the term, but the way you're teaching who influencers are, what they do and what they mean, it's actually different than what I had thought. So can you tell me what's different about your approach to this topic? I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. Uh, and that's that's part of what drove me to to write the book and teach the subject, because my reaction is the exact same. And and the worst is the when I, when people introduce me and they're like, and she's a fitness influencer. <laughs> and I have to say that the term influence <laughs> influence is an action. It's not a job title. So. By nature of saying you're an influencer, and first of all, that the presentation on that is, yes, that is cringeworthy, but you have to ask, everybody is an influencer in some way. And so, and I, and I got, I was on a podcast with somebody that they, they I don't think they quite, uh, they said, well, isn't that word of mouth marketing? And I said, yeah, here's the thing. Like in order to understand influencer marketing, we must first understand the term influence. And so this idea that all of a sudden influencer marketing is like this new, this new wave of business and this new wave of marketing, it's not. Influence has been around from the beginning of communication. Social media tools have given us ways, new tools to, to, to reach bigger audiences, but social media is a communication tool. It's not an influencer. Mm-hmm. Having a social media following does not mean you're an influencer. Having a large audience does not mean you're an influencer. Being a celebrity does not mean you're an influencer. Can you be a celebrity and be an influencer? Yes. Can you have a large social media following and be an influencer? Yes. But they're, they're not correlated because you have to get back to the very fact of who is my audience, right? And who is making, who is influencing their decision on the desired action? And that who doesn't necessarily mean it's a human. It could be like if you're putting out a book and it's a nonfiction, it's a fiction book, maybe Oprah's book club sticker that you slap that sticker on your book at a bookstore. And all of a sudden your book has influence uh, there. The World Health Organization, they tell you to wear a mask. All of a sudden we're wearing masks. So there are all these different so that the heart, the idea behind influencer marketing is really the study of being able to figure out 
who or what is influencing the desired action. And that's different than attention. And I think that's where we get so confused. Attention, popularity, buzz, engagement. Those are all the things that we seem to be equating with influence and measurement, but they do not correlate to influence. And now it's come to a point where there's a lot of agencies that will say that they're, you know, they're, they're very advanced and they're saying, oh, no, no, we understand it's not the size of an audience, but it's the amount of engagement. We measure engagement. Well, engagement doesn't mean influence either because you have to define engagement. If I have a video that goes viral tomorrow on how cute somebody's kitten, kitty cats are, and it goes viral and it, on, on an engagement metric for every ad agency, maybe my ad agency could win the award because I got a viral video, I've got millions of converts, shares, all, you know, all these metrics. But if it has nothing to do with my bottom line, it doesn't matter. So we have to reframe how we think about influence in order to understand influencer marketing. And that whole paradigm that I'm talking about doesn't just apply to a corporation or a business. It applies to every human too, because we are all brands, whether we like it or not. What you we have, we all have a presence now, online, in person. So we everything that applies that can be said for a business can be said for yourself too. Well, and it's it's interesting because you know when when people say, oh, we're going to measure engagement. I was talking to someone the other day who buys engagement. They, they, they get likes on their thing because they go in and they, they post their, uh, uh, they, they buy views in like third world English speaking countries and they're inexpensive to buy versus buying in a clicks, you know, it's inexpensive to buy. And so when you look at their videos, they have a ton of views on YouTube or wherever their videos are living. And they're like, oh, cause I asked them, I'm like, well, how do you get so many views? Because, you know. I get a handful of views, but it's like, how do you get that many? And he goes, oh, I buy them because then people think I have more power. And that was either good or bad. I'm not going to be judgy. But from the outside, people would say, oh, that person has more influence. No, that people has, that person has put cash in to get that number higher than I have. And how do you feel? Right? How do you feel as a brand who's who's because a lot of brands and agencies are going, OK, for X number of views, X number of comments, X number of whatever, it's this number of dollars. And as a brand that puts money in and then they don't see the conversion, but they're getting they're getting the engagement, but they're not getting the conversion. That's where, you know, I have to say that this when you see titles like uh, does influencer marketing really work or um, how, how do we negate fake influencers? I'm like, first of all, the, by definition, there can't be a fake influencer. Like, <laughs> you're not either you're an influencer or you're not either you're influential or you're not. Um, but it's not that influencer marketing doesn't work. It's like we're, we're, we're mistaking influencer marketing for advertising, for social media advertising, for all these different for popularity, for buzz. So I think we went once we can make and that's become my mission is like once we can make that just that shift in how to think, it all becomes so much clearer. It becomes like a, an aha moment. So what are some of the other misconceptions then about this whole world of, of influencers and influencer marketing? So the, the big ones, I think that I, I, I you know, there's many. One of, is, is obviously social media is not influence. It's a communication channel. If I call you on the telephone yesterday, Tom, and I said, oh, you have to check out this fabulous new restaurant. And then you on Wednesday, you say, oh, I, I, I went to that restaurant. It was wonderful. The telephone was not the influencer. 
<laughs> right? The, it's, it's me. It was the force behind it. Social media is the telephone of our day, of our time. Uh, and myth number two is the size of one's audience. The, the level of engagement does not equal influence. And, and people buy followers all the time. They buy followers. They they buy comments. They buy engagement. And and that's it. Is that influence is not just something. Influencer marketing is not just online. It is that it's everywhere. I think that that goes along with that. Online has given us more application the communication tools. And then number three is that uh, the influence. And this is a big one. Influence is not universal. So influence in one category does not translate to influence in another. So, you know, I, I have this, this slide that I have when I'm trying to teach my students on day one of the difference between that influence is not universal. And one is a picture of like Obama. And then another is a picture of just a random man. And I say, who has more influence? And obviously they're like, Obama has more influence. Well, what if I told you that, you know, what if you are training for your first marathon and the, 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 the guy that you don't recognize is actually the owner of a, a really specialty running shop and you're buying your first pair of training shoes? Who's more influential then? Yeah, I would want the owner of the running store to tell me which Nikes to buy and not President Obama. Right. So influence in one category doesn't translate to influence in another. Who's influential in one spot? Not necessarily influential in another. So those are the three big ones that I think that we need to like get through first uh, before we before we then dive into, OK, well, then now how do we go about influencer marketing? So let's take a couple of pieces before we wrap up. What are a couple of things we should do for companies? And, and let's just target this to just midsize growth oriented companies. What should they be doing? Well, number one, I mean, the code, the codes, the code, I, I spell it out as the code just to give a framework around it. And number one is, and this goes for not just influencer marketing, but I think all of marketing and business strategy is that it shouldn't be siloed to marketing. Uh, it needs, we need to start everything that we do. And I think, you know, I think of this, like I, I have a running analogy in my head because I was a runner, but I think it's really the most you know, parallel analogy for all of my, all of business, which is start with the end goal. And that's different from an objective. So we get objectives and goals confused all the time, but to start with the end goal, because too often we start with, so what are we going to do for our marketing strategy? What are we going to do for our sales strategy? And if we're not starting with the end goal, then that strategy is going to look very different. The end goal will determine the objectives, which will determine the strategy. And is that why a lot of award-winning marketing campaigns don't drive the bottom line? Is they didn't actually think about, we have to drive the bottom line, they just made a really cool campaign? It is exactly. And it's funny because I do. I, I actually um, wrote a case study on, on one of a major, major brand that I won't even go into mentioning here, but it was an award. It was exactly what you're talking about. Award winning level um, uh, campaign, Super Bowl campaign. And if you actually look at the, the, the brand's numbers, they, they lost market share. Worse market. They, they lost so much that it was the worst they had ever been placed in history. <laughs> Why? Because they focused on all the wrong metrics. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's that. I think that, that that's what exactly what I get at with you need to start bottom line. And that's why marketing advertisers, they get a bad rep because their creative creativity and buzz is great, but there's a formula that I'll give you. And I, 
if there's one thing you remember from this to apply to your business, it's this very simple formula. Every time that you're going to do, whether it's a personal campaign or a corporate campaign, or you're going to measure one, before you do any spend or time strategy, you got to measure with the three Bs. And the one that we remember first is buzz. But before we launch into it, you have to think, okay, well, will this campaign, yes, it will garner buzz. Is it number two on brand? Does it speak to the values of our mission and mission of our brand? And number three, what is the behavior? What is the end behavior, desired behavior, action that we need to achieve? And those three things, it's so simple, brand, buzz, and behavior. But but, but just by applying that will help you save a lot of wasted time and money. Okay, everybody, remember the three Bs. And before I let her go, we're going to get the rest of the code. So the first one, there's four. The first one was uh, start with your, you know, know what the end looks like. Know what you're working towards. What's the second, third, and fourth part of the code? There's so it's it's, it's actually one, two, and three. Oh, but sorry. two is broken into, you're, you're right though. Two is broken into two phases because number two is your audience. And that is where we get, we, we go wrong in influencer marketing because we immediately then go, okay, so now we have, even if we're doing it right, we have our goal, we have our objectives. Then we go, okay, so who are our influencers? And by nature of asking that next, who are the right influencers? We are skipping the whole process. It's the wrong question to ask. You need to ask who is our audience? And then, so you become, you have to become, step two is become a detective. Figuring out who is your audience, but what are their needs and wants and desires? And then who is influencing? Where are they going for that information? What's, who's solving those problems? And by nature, then you are then selecting and identifying the influencers. And then number three is connect. And that connect is establishing the, the, the win, the mutually beneficial, seriously mutual long-term relationship with an influencer, which is easier said than done. It's not as simple as saying, okay, so we know that, you know, X, Y, Z is influencing our market. Let's just call them up and let, let's just tell them that, you know, this is what we're doing. And like, can they just, can they just do this for us? Because that's just advertising that's transactional and you might be able to pay them, but it's probably going to be like a one-off, a blip. Long-term influencer marketing is a long-term game. It's a business strategy. It's like, I compare it to like building a marriage instead of a one night stand. (laughs) Both are good, but you probably want to build the marriage. (laughs) For for the bottom line, you want to build the marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where can people get this book and, and, and why should they get this book? So the, uh, the influence, you can get it on my website, which is amandarussell.co, or you can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold, <laughs> Barnes and Noble, all of the above. Um, I, you know, people ask what's the most beneficial. I really didn't b- write this book to, to increase my own bottom line. I, I really have the mission of trying to change the paradigm and how we think about influencer marketing, because I know how it's changed the course of my life in applying these principles, both personally um, and professionally. And I think that if when other people can grasp that, they will shift the way that they do business and think about their careers. Um, and it'll help everybody. So uh, I think whether you're, uh, you know, a, s- a startup or a student uh, looking to figure out their career, or whether you're, you know, the CMO of a top uh, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 company, this applies. 
Well, Amanda, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. People can find you at amandarussell.co. I assume you're also out there on all the social medias. Uh, I am, yes, all the social medias. I can give you those for your show notes. Awesome. We'll we'll post those on the page with this, uh, but you can find her there. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every single time. If it wasn't for the audience, why would I do the show? We are over 600 episodes and six years in, and we're still just starting to have the fun that uh, I wanted to have when we started the show. So we still got a long, long, long way to go. So uh, keep coming back. Do me a favor. Yes, like every podcaster, I say, go to Apple Podcasts, leave that review. Yes, reviews are awesome and it makes me happy when I see there's a new one. So go do that. But more importantly, tell a friend. Because here's the thing. When I talk to somebody and I say, how did you find it? They say, oh, I like your show. How did you ever find it? They say, oh, my mother, my sister, my boss, my friend, somebody told them to listen. So go out there right now, be an influencer. Tell them about making waves at sea level. All right. In the meantime, we'll be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody making waves who's just as cool as Amanda. And you're thinking, what? How will you find somebody just as cool? But we'll do it. We do it twice a week, every every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, In the meantime, go out there, make some waves, flex your entrepreneurial muscles. And while you're at it, have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.